thanks for joining us. I'm Jen Winkleman. This next pocket of time is going to be dedicated to the healing art of storytelling. I've been working in the mental health field for the better part of the last two decades, and in that time, because of my work, I've had the great privilege of hearing countless stories. I hear stories that leave me at the end of the day filled with awe about the resilience of the human spirit. And I get to hear stories about those surprising moments when love steps in to save the day at the very last moment. And I hear stories about the true grit it sometimes takes to survive the human experience. I learn something about life and humanity from all of these stories, and I want to be able to share what I've learned. But because of the part that I play in my community, I'm meant to be a keeper of those narratives. It's important that I maintain privacy and confidentiality for the families that I serve. And so those stories have to stay inside the four walls of my counseling office and are held by those sacred moments where one person tells their truth and another person bears witness to it. And in this, there's some sort of magic that we co-create that leads to healing. But this has me thinking that the reach for healing could be bigger. So I decided that outside the counseling office and on a larger scale, we needed a forum for storytelling. We need to get back to the root of taking the time to listen to each other's experiences and to begin to draw from them. So today, our guest and I will have an unscripted conversation, apart from the questions that we routinely ask to get into it. And then you and I will have the opportunity to learn a bit from his or her experience. In every case, there is value and something that we can borrow for our own lives. Because behind every face, there is a story. And in every story, there are life lessons begging to be learned. So as we listen along today, it's up to us to find the lesson in the story. And then if you and I so choose, we can catch that truth like a firefly in a jar and use it as light on our own paths. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. Today, our guest is Kelly. Kelly, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us. Absolutely. We're going to start off today like we do every other interview, asking those four main anchor questions. Okay. And then um, working from there, we'll, we'll choose our springboard for where we want to head. Okay. So first things first, who are you? What is it that our listeners need to know about who you are to make the most of today's conversation? Well, I am a mom, first and foremost. I have three awesome kiddos. I have a daughter who's 16 that we adopted from China when she was nine. And then we have a son who's 12, who's homegrown. And then we have Charlotte, who's 10. And she also was adopted from China. And how old was Charlotte when she came home? She was 22 months old. Okay. I wanted to ask because we talked about your oldest, so mm-hmm. I'm just painting the full mm-hmm. the full picture. Mm-hmm. So on the on the spectrum of ordinary and extraordinary, mm-hmm. some of us feel that we live a very ordinary life, and others of us feel like we have this extraordinary existence. Mm-hmm. So on the spectrum between the two, where do you where would you plot your life? I probably would actually plot it somewhere in the middle there because in some ways my life is very ordinary, but then there's definitely been extraordinary um, events that have happened that make my life stand out for sure. What is it about your life that you feel like falls under that ordinary umbrella? Well, I'm a stay-at-home mom to three kids, so, you know, we live in the suburbs and um, I take my kids to school and pick them up and make dinner and get them to their activities and just want them to be happy and healthy and successful and above all else kind people in society. Um, I think that's pretty much our every day, but then there's been extraordinary circumstances that have happened um, that kind of go beyond that or where people will say to me, I don't know how you do what you do, or I don't know how you live your life. It must be so difficult that that type of stuff that there's definitely been some big mountains to climb. 
So let's paint the picture a little bit for our listeners about what might fall under that um, extraordinary umbrella. I have a little bit of sense of those things, but they don't. Uh huh. Well, um, I guess to back it up, my husband and I met in high school. Um, we started dating when we were graduating from high school, and we've been together since then. Um, we, I have a heart problem, um, which I've known about since I was 13. So I was always told that I shouldn't have kids. I should be sterilized. Um, like should just have the surgery so I can't have kids because there was a risk to my heart if I had kids. That was really tough, really, really tough because the one thing, if you had asked me when I was a little girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always want a mom. So when my husband and I were like 18, we, um, accepted that. Well, I did as much as I could at that time. And we'd always dreamed that we would, um, adopt from China. And so that was kind of our plan, but you had to be 30 to adopt from China. So we had to wait, um, a long time. Well, it's me, a long time when you're 18, it seemed like that forever. Is an eternity. It was forever. Literally the adoption agency said that we could turn the paperwork in when Monty turned 30 and I was 29 and a half. And literally it was on that exact day that we were there <laughs> we were turning our paperwork roll. in because <laughs> we were just that excited. Yeah. But so that was kind of the plan. Um, I was a teacher, um, Monty went to business school and we kind of had things planned out. Well, we got married, um, when we were about 23 almost and kind of lived our lives and had some good adventures and, um, kind of wait until we turned 30. And then I went to my cardiologist and he said, oh, there's somebody that actually specializes in your condition, which is called Marfan syndrome. And she's a new doctor in Denver. And you should just go to her just because, you know, she's a specialist just just to kind of touch consult. base. Right, consult. It wasn't for anything in particular. It was just, you know. So Monty and I went up there and we go see her and she was the most amazing doctor and she walked in and she was telling us all this stuff and all this new stuff about basically what Marfan syndrome is, is it's a connective tissue disorder, um, which affects your, um, well, lots of things, but the biggest, most important part is your heart and, um, it can cause aneurysm. So at this point I had a small aneurysm in my aorta, but they were just watching it. So we went to this doctor and we're just kind of kind of get the checkup and meet her and kind of touch base. And she came into the room and just talking about, you know, where my heart was and um, things we need to be careful for. And she said, you know, if you were going to have a baby, now would be the time because your risk would be relatively low. And you're like, uh, hold the phone. Yeah. You mean my, if I'm going to have right, a baby? Right. <laughs> because I had been told for so long, no, no babies. babies, no babies. And so literally... Monty and I are just looking at each other. I'm sure I started crying. Um, we had no idea that that was even going to come up. And she said, you know, I mean, yeah, there's risk, but the risk is low right now. Your aorta is at a point where we would just have to monitor you a lot during pregnancy and you would probably have to have a C-section and, and that sort of thing. Um, and we were just like blown away. Like, we don't care. We'll do whatever wait. you say. Well, that's how I was. It took Monty a little convincing because he was a little worried, obviously, about you about me and um so we were driving home and I was just like oh we have to do this we have to do this and it didn't take too much convincing and luckily we didn't two weeks later we were pregnant oh my gosh oh my gosh we were talk about time yeah so when we then I then called my cardiologist and was like Dr. Yetman I'm pregnant and she's like whoa that's like and that was Carter and so he that's kind of the start of him as our miracle baby and we never knew we were going to have him he was like our unexpected little blessing um I was watched very closely during pregnancy and when Carter was 35 weeks along I had a scheduled c-section and other than him having to be in the NICU one night and needing some oxygen he was he was healthy and and good and um, at that point I was um, 27 so we were getting closer to that 30 
so life with Carter was great and we just kind of went about our merry ways and loved being a mom and staying home and taking care of him and um, then became that time we could start working on paperwork for China so we did that and uh, we actually found our our second child that we um, were going to bring into the family on our adoption website. She was an available child and we just saw her little picture and we just knew she was the one. And she actually had some pretty scary diagnoses on there that, um, you know, you look it up online, you don't want to look on Google, but you do. And, um, it's scary, but it didn't, it didn't matter. She was just, our, you felt connected. She was just our girl. It didn't matter what it was. And um, and I called my friend Laurel and told her about it. And her husband uh, was a doctor. And so he looked at Charlotte's file over Labor Day that year and, you know, kind of told us what we could expect based on her um, diagnoses and stuff. And so we accepted that next day. And um, then we were, you know, on the way to get all the approvals to go adopt her and whatnot. Well, that was like September. Well, a few weeks later we found out. So at this point, Carter's three and we've got our paperwork turned in. We're trying to get everything set up. And then we find out that my aorta had, the aneurysm had gotten a lot bigger. Mm. So I had to have surgery, um, open heart surgery on that. And literally I was in the hospital having open heart surgery. And then China started to be difficult because then they're, they were saying, well, in China, Marfan syndrome has a really low, um, life expectancy and this, you know, so we had to have all my doctors sign that they had saved my life and they're looking um, at you a lot. Right. I hear I am. Applicant. Right. And, um, so that kind of became a whole other fight. Um, they didn't want to give us approval for Charlotte. Then we had to get, go through extra months of heartache and I just wanted to get my baby. And then finally on March 9th, um, 2009, she was placed in my arms in China. And that was little Charlotte. And and she came home. And she came home, and she's been my little sidekick ever since. My little sparkles. But when we were there adopting Charlotte, we went to her orphanage, and we saw the older kids and, like, the look in their eyes because people come for the younger kids and not the older kids. And it just really tore at my heartstrings and my husband's. and Left an impression. On left you. an impression. A void, for sure unfinished business it felt like you know we thought we were just going to have the two and then I was getting that you getting that feeling again like we need to go back and you know we read this story on our third child that we adopted um Lily and she had two dreams she she wanted to go to school and she wanted to have a mom and dad and we just felt really drawn to her story and again I called my friend Laurel and kind of hashed it out with her because at this point um, let's see, Carter was four and Charlotte must've been two. And this little girl we were looking at was nine. And so we'd be adopting out of birth order. And of course everybody says, don't do that. And we shouldn't do it. And all this stuff. And, you know, it just felt right. And my good friend just helped make it feel right. And we decided to take the plunge and the risk and, so then we got on board, and, and December, on December 20th, 2010, we brought Lily home, who was nine and a half at the time. So it sounds like Marfan syndrome and heart surgeries and mm-hmm. surprise pregnancy mm-hmm. and adoption, mm-hmm. like these are some of the things that sort of take your life kind of into that extraordinary mm-hmm. yeah. end of the spectrum. Like these are unusual, special things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, you know, we were happy living the dream, the American dream. Our kids were flourishing. They were happy. We were happy. Our relationship was great. Everything's going great. We move into a new neighborhood so the kids could go to better schools and Lily needed a lot of extra help because she hadn't been to school in China and here she is nine years old and speaking Mandarin and so we wanted her to have the best education she could get and school was one of her dreams and school was one of her dreams and so we 
we moved and um, that was a great thing. We had a great year and then come April of that year, the rug got yanked right out under from under us again. So I, ha- I have a feeling that that's like part of where we'll spend most of our mm-hmm. time talking. Mm-hmm. So let's pause for just a second and ask that third anchor question about success. Okay. What, what is it to you that defines a successful life? Wow. You know, it's really interesting because if you had asked me this five years ago, I'd probably have a completely different answer than what I do today. Yeah. And today I think the success of life is, um, to have people around you that love and care about you, um, to be with those people as much as you can, to appreciate little things in life because it's the little things that really are the big things and to be healthy and to have each other, that life is not about things or, um, you know, who makes the most money or has a better house or what kind of car you drive or what vacations you can go on. It's about the legacy that you leave and it's about the spirit that you have while you're going through your times and how you choose to handle the hardships you have because everybody has hardships. Everybody has mountains and valleys and things they need to climb and it's all in how you approach those is kind of what the key to life is. My son has taught me, he has a mantra that's attitude is everything. And that's kind of, you can relate that to everything. Yeah. Um, if you can live by having a good attitude and approaching things in a positive way and looking at the bright side of things and trying to find the joy in the little things, whether it's just getting outside and smelling the fresh cut grass or um, being having your whole family home and celebrating and watching a movie and having dinner together, you know, those are those are the important things. That's what success is to me. So coming off of that uh, definition of success, Mm -hmm. what would you say are three events, experiences, life circumstances that have most shaped the path of your life? And then let's choose one of those three things and, and talk about it more in depth. Well, that's hard. I mean, I definitely would say like meeting my husband, Monty, and being with the love of my life because I can't imagine being with anybody else other than him on this journey. So that's definitely, I mean, we've been together since we were 18. Um, and he's just kind of like my partner and everything. So that my relationship with him is huge. Um, and that has always been that way. Um, as far as like three actual events, Um, I definitely would say probably my open heart surgery because before Charlotte came home. Yeah. Because, you know, there, there, it was risky and it was an emergency type situation. And, you know, I remember telling Monty, you know, if I don't come out of this or I don't make it, um, you know, please tell Carter this, that, you know, I was so worried that he'd be able to still go get Charlotte and all this other stuff. It makes me so emotional. I know. Just to even think about it. It's, it was scary at the time. And of course it's a little guy and he, Carter was three and didn't understand. And of course Monty was like, no, no, we're not going to talk. But I had to, I had to talk about it because I had to feel like, everything was going to be like you weren't leaving anything right done and like I the just, worst happened you know and here's charlotte over in china in an orphanage and like uh my heart was there and so that was tough so but it also made me get through that horrific recovery um faster because i was there was the light at the end of that tunnel like going to get charlotte i have to get better to go to china like i have to you were chasing something pretty important. right right there there's a positive thing at the end of this and um and i would do it all over again i knew when i had carter that i was taking a risk at, at increasing my aorta size and but it was worth the risk and I'd do it a hundred times over to have him like, so you do that. But, um, that was defining, you know, and it, and it was tough taking care of a three-year-old and recovering and, um, thank God for my parents and my family and friends that helped out with that. And, um, so that was definitely pivotal. Um, 
also leading up to when Charlotte got placed in my arms. I mean, you know, people people say they want to have their own biological children, and I can tell you, having a biological child and a child through adoption, it's 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 different, but it's so much of the same. Like you just. When she was placed in my arms, it was just my baby. Like, it's like she'd always been there with me. She was just my little kindred spirit. And um, her and I connected right from the beginning. She was, she was very easy in that sense. Um, so, that, so that was huge. Um, I would say a, a second life pivotal event was um, also at the same time um, could go back to adopting Lily because that was also amazing and beautiful and she was so happy to have a family and she just wanted to see her room and come home and I'll never forget when I took her to Target after we got home and decided she'd be placed in third grade and we went to Target to pick out her school supplies and she found a Hello Kitty lunchbox and I told her she could get it and she literally went like over the heels excitement in Target over this Aww. Hello Kitty lunchbox because she had never had anything that was hers. And then Aww. the lunchbox wasn't enough. Then we picked out pencils and her notebook and this little box of just regular wooden yellow pencils. And she was like pointing to herself going, mine, mine. And I'm like, yes, those are yours. And she, she just could not get over the fact that she was going to get this whole package of pencils. And it was um, really life-changing for me at that moment because kids, most kids don't, thankfully, don't have to be without and they have families, but the ones that don't, it's just a huge thing. Whoever thought a box of pencils could be the highlight of yeah of her year but that that lunchbox and that box of pencils and going to school was by far i'm sure she would say a pivotal moment in her life for yeah sure. if you were asking that yeah if you were to ask her that she would absolutely say that and she loved every opportunity that was given to her that she could take and um she just went in there and she learned english quickly she learned to read quickly um so you know, that part was really good. Her and Carter connected really close right from the very first day. Um, at that time, he was in kindergarten and she was in third grade and they were just the best buddies um, and always have been. Um, so that was good. Um, but there's been, you know, struggles with that too. Um, adopting an older child is not unicorns and rainbows all the time. Um, there's definitely... Uh, trials that come with that both for Lily and for the family and we've done everything we've you know can and to show her how loved she is and um, how much she's wanted and you know she had a, a pretty rough time in China and that definitely leaves its mark but it's not easy but it's worth it and she, she's worth it and little like back to the little things uh just watching her play her violin or do art or something that makes her happy is worth every second of any heartache or challenge that um that we've all had to face and we've faced it as a family our family's grown closer and stronger because of uh things we've had to go through and um but one thing is we'll always be there for each other and we always have each other's back and that's that's important and we love each other very very much so let's see we i think we're i probably two, said more than three no no it's okay we're a couple events in because the the way that i heard it was your your heart and your your heart and marfan syndrome like ties to carter and mm -hmm. him coming into your life and it also ties to lily or i'm sorry to charlotte mm -hmm. in a different way absolutely and the way that she came into your life so all that's kind of all kind intertwined of in package mm -hmm. yeah and then bringing lily home mm -hmm. um, adopting a child who's older getting some some perspective mm -hmm. on what happens to a child when they have nothing mm -hmm. and you present them with something Mm -hmm. So so bringing Lily home and, and getting a, 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 
not a subtle picture, but a really profound picture of what happens to a person when they have nothing and, yeah. and you bring them into a life that, that has something and, and more than something. Mm-hmm. And there's probably, um, responses to that experience that are on both sides of the coin, right? Oh, absolutely. A lot of joy and a lot of pain. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You do that. You go through that and you do that together as a family. But that's what we do for each other. You know, sometimes one of us needs more support and help at one time in our lives. And then we all kind of rally around. And then, you know, we go on to the next person that needs that. Um, It's all about what we each need. And I just, I see my kids blossoming. And, you know, I think the most important thing is they're kind kids. And they're uh, polite. And they're loving. And... And they care a lot about each other. So what about the third, the so third the, event? Does that bring us back to April of 2013? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> April 30th, 2013, to be exact. We found out that um, Carter at the time was eight. And we found out that he had cancer. Um T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia with CNS involvement, to be exact. Um, That day in the pediatrician's office will be forever etched in my mind. Uh, He'd been kind of off for a couple weeks, thought he had the flu, just wasn't acting right, not hungry, getting sick, moaning in his sleep, just odd. And... The doctor thought he had the flu, and I took him in, and they're like, well, it could just be lasting a while, because he'd be okay a couple days, and then he'd get sick and just not be right, and then he'd be okay. So it was like he, he just his body just couldn't fight off whatever virus we thought this was. And I took him back to the pediatrician, and he just said, he's this is not right. And so he had us do blood work and some x-rays. So I had kind of prepared myself like, okay, maybe he has appendicitis or something along those lines. Um, never in my wildest dreams would I have imagined the doctor coming in and saying that he had cancer. Um, it just literally took my breath away. I mean, I, I feel like I feel so clumsy right now. I don't even know. I don't even know what to say about what happened next. When the last thing you said is it took my breath away mm-hmm. because how do you keep going from there? Yeah. When you have the wind knocked out of you in that way. Mm-hmm. Like what? It, it literally did feel like that. Like the wind was knocked out of me. I, and I just remember thinking, I can't lose it because Carter's laying right here. And he oh heard God. the doctor saying all Yeah, this. and of course he has no idea. He's eight years old. What's cancer? I mean, last he had heard was his uh, little sister, Charlotte. She had her preschool teacher for two years, Brenda, who was one of Charlotte's favorite people in the whole world. And she she died from cancer and when Charlotte was in her last year of preschool. And that was devastating to Charlotte and obviously to Brenda's family. And that was Carter's experience with cancer. So I... You know, we talk, can only imagine what went through his little brain at that time. And, um, did you ever talk about it? Yeah, we do now. Like, he was just confused, and, um, we're trying to explain to him. And, of course, I'm just trying not to lose it and could barely talk. And at one point, I called my husband, Monty, and just said, You need to come to the pediatrician's office right now. I, I, I couldn't tell him, and he just knew something was bad he just came straight there I kind of feel bad looking back on it like here he had to drive 20-30 minutes to the office not knowing what was going on and um, I just couldn't say the words out loud at that point um, and so doctor, his doctor was amazing and explained, tried to explain to him what this was and I'm trying you know I'm sitting there and I'm thinking okay okay like now what? And so I'm thinking, okay, so in, so I take it we need to make an appointment with an oncologist or something. And he's like, oh, honey, you're not going home. You're going straight to the hospital. Like, oh gosh. Like it was just like one thing after, like, 
like, we're going to the hospital. And then of course, you know, then you see Carter's face and he's like, what? I'm going to the hospital. Like the scared. That amps up the fear for him. Oh yeah. It amps up the fear for him. It amps it up for me. I'm starting envisioning, you know, I have my own stuff from hospitals and, um, you know, I'm just starting to like go through all this mind and I'm thinking of the St. Jude commercials and all the, you know, kids on there that they're talking about. No, now when I'm, you know, you just never think it's going to be your child. You just don't ever go there. You don't ever think kids can get cancer, but they do. And, um, we went to our local hospital and they, you know, we just kind of kept getting more bad news after the next. It was, well, he has leukemia. Um, his treatment's going to be three and a half years. Uh, processing that your eight-year-old is going to have three and a half years of chemo um, was huge for me. Um, and then they found out he had a mass in his chest, and they were worried his airway was going to collapse. So then we had to be um, transferred up to Denver to go to Children's. And, of course, we, they were going to airlift him, but it was a blizzard in springtime. So we had to take an ambulance in a blizzard on I-25. That was fun. Um, up to Denver. Uh, but it was there when we got there that we realized we were home. The, his oncologist was waiting for us that night at like 10 or 11 at night. And she's still standing by our side to this day. She's like a part of our family now. And she was there through the night explaining to us, what was happening, what was going on. Um, his nurses were fabulous, but yeah, it was a whirlwind. And I remember just waking up trying to sleep and I doze off for like half hour or something and wake up like, Oh, it was just a dream. And then like the reality that, no, this is real. It was like, you were reliving that nightmare, like over and over and over and over again that, you know, they couldn't even get an IV placed in him because he was so sick. And, um, so that just was kind of like the, the trauma that was then enduring him. And as a mother watching your child have to have things done to them that hurt and are scary and are, you know, painful and, oh, that feeling of helplessness, having to be part of it and trying to soothe them and tell them it's okay when it's not okay. Like, um, well, you want to be able to promise that everything is going to be okay. And as, as a parent, you want to be able to fix it. Yeah. You want to be able to kiss the Mm boo-boo, you know, and Mm -hmm. this is one you can't even touch Mm -mm. and you have no idea what to say to him about the outcome. Right. Yeah. So that kind of just started a whirlwind of procedures and chemo and brain radiation. Um, we found, Oh, we also found out that it had spread to his central nervous system. So they had to do brain radiation because he had cancer cells in his spinal fluid surrounding his brain and in his spine. Um, and then we found, then it took a few days for them to process his own bone marrow aspiration and spinal taps. And, um, they ended up finding out that he had a more rare type of, you know, cause they kind of tell you, well, this is your kid has leukemia, but you kind of hope it's this one because this one, you know, and of course, you know, Carter had a more rare type that was more aggressive. Um, being the T cell. So it was kind of just like a whirlwind. They started chemo literally like that day. The, they, the day after you arrived at Children's. Right. They put a port in, or actually they put a pick line in, which is a central line in his arm. So he had lines dangling from his arm and literally started chemo that same day. They put the pick line in. They Usually they give kids a, a port in their chest when they have chemo, but because Carter had a mass in his chest, they couldn't put anything in his chest because they were worried that the mass would crush his lungs and heart. So they had to break that up before they could do that. So then, you know, then we had the pick line. So then that led to dressing changes that were horrible and, you know, all kinds of things that were unpleasant and scary for you, but you're keeping it together for your kid. And then not to mention you have two other kids who are home with grandma. Wondering what's going on. Yeah. Wondering what's going on. And you know, who, who have come from hard places who just want their mom. And now they were separated and, um, yeah, it was tough. 
What did you tell the girls and what did you tell Carter about what was happening to him? Well, they have amazing people at Children's that are child life people and that's like their job. They like help kids get through procedures and explain things to them. They gave him a stuffed teddy bear that Carter named Carter 2 and that was his bear and everything that he went through, his bear went through. They even performed surgery on his bear and put a port in when he finally did get a port. Uh, he had a pick line just like Carter. So like little things like that, but it really made Carter feel a lot um, better. It was very, it was very scary for him and for us and the girls. Um, you know, at that point, the girls, I think were more just like, what's going on the family's all some are here some are here um you know they had their own things that that first week and a half when we were in the hospital that we had to miss and thank god for my mom who could step in but i know for them it was still it was still hard because yeah, you want your mom. you want your mom there and you know fifth grade graduation um i'm in the hospital with carter and so my mom took her to that, you know, to, took Lily to that. So all that was hard. Um, but the girls have been rock stars through that. And, but yeah, it was, it was scary. We've had lots of conversations with um, Carter. As he went further along, his questions got a lot deeper. Um, you know, I think it's pretty hard to conceptualize cancer they would make they made little picture books for him to like show him um on his level like these are the cells in your body this is what's happening and then this is the chemo and this is what the chemo could do to your body as a side effect so he knew he was going to lose his hair and stuff um and when that started happening um he once his hair started falling out in clumps he just wanted it shaved yeah. off and but that was really really difficult I think even more so for Monty and I than maybe even Carter just that realization that he has cancer you know well it's a visual it's a visual cue yep. that you cannot right escape mm -hmm. and it and kind of a signature of chemo right mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a constant reminder. Yeah. But yeah, even now that he, ha even when he was on treatment and his hair grew back, people would say, well, he must be fine. He has hair now. People associate hair so much with cancer and, and, and really not every chemo makes well, you lose your hair. Your hair. So yeah. there are plenty of people that are going through cancer treatments that have their hair, but everyone pictures that bald, sickly looking person. And that's not necessarily what you see it they may look okay on the outside but inside they're sick well in that like place of tension for your family when carter's hair started to grow back mm -hmm. like just the comments that he must mm -hmm. be okay and things must be fine now and oh it's you're out of the woods mm -hmm. when you're not right absolutely that was hard and then the people saying oh you're so strong i don't know how you do it and i'm like you would do it too. I mean, you know, I don't have a like, choice. You don't have a choice. Well, I could never do that. Or then you also get the people too. Like, I can't believe you're pumping poison into your child. And it's like, he I don't have a choice. Like I had one, it's not like I'm choosing to, right. I had one person who at the time was a friend and the day Carter was diagnosed and we found, or the day we found out he needed brain radiation is sending me articles saying, don't do it. It's going to fry his brain and completely terrified us to the point where they had the, I was like, do we have to do this? Like, is this going to make him like a total vegetable or the radiation oncologist came up to our room and talked to us and he said, let me just put it this way. If, if I don't do brain radiation on Carter, he will die. And it was just like that moment where it was just like, we have to, this die. is real. Like, this isn't like, we don't have a choice. We have, you have to do this stuff. Like, even because if it's with, a gamble, right. Without it's it, the only chance you have without it, he will die. And even with it, he could still die. You know, it's just, you don't have a choice. You know, and the, the chemo that's saving your child's life and watching it get pumped through your child's body and watching them start to retch and vomit and get sick and horrible things. Like, you hate the chemo, but you love it because you hate it because it's causing them to be miserable. And But then it's also doing what it needs to be doing, too, and killing the bad cells. So, 
you don't really have a choice. You feel very, as a mom, you feel very out of control and very helpless because you have to basically continue to be subjecting your child to this and you don't have a choice and they don't have a choice, but you're trying to help them get through it. And yeah, it's pretty, there's probably some PTSD there for some moms too, for sure, that have had to go through this. Dads. For you? Or do you feel like you have... No, I think there probably is to some degree. Yeah. Certain things take me right back to it. Like? The smell of the soap in the hospital. Walking onto the seventh floor at Children's is different because all the other floors have, like, carpet. And that floor has to be sterile, so it's got floors they can bleach everything's bleached and when you're impatient they come in and they have to bleach everything down so like the smell of bleach Mm -hmm. is something you kind of get used to but it also like yeah right because when they're going through chemo and they have leukemia their immune systems are totally compromised so any little sickness or bug could make him sick or potentially even kill him so like you were literally like afraid of a cold of a cold so then, and then you have, you know, two other kids. So it's like, okay. Who are going to school. Right. And going sick and, getting, and bringing it home. And then you want to take care of them and you don't want it to, you know, and, um, any fever meant for Carter meant a hospital trip. Sometimes he'd be admitted if his counts were low. Sometimes he wouldn't, it would just depend on what his counts would look like. And there were days where he'd have can't, he'd have chemo every day for five days straight. I mean, we pretty much just lived up there. Um, it was, and that went on for three and a half years. You, you said at the beginning that when he was diagnosed, the doctor was pretty clear about the length of treatment Mm -hmm. and that's the way that it worked out for you guys. Mm -hmm. Almost exactly. Mm -hmm. How is Carter doing now? Carter's been in remission for 11 months now. So he's off treatment, and he's been off treatment for 11 months, and he's in remission. So um, he's doing well. He has a lot of side effects that he deals with on a daily basis, which are hard. He's He's got um, severe neuropathy, um, damage to his nerves from chemo. Um, so it saved his life, but it also has caused severe damage and causes him to be in chronic pain from his back and his legs and feet. Um, he has tremors in his hand um, that make it hard to do, you know, writing and fine motor stuff. So, you know, he has a lot of hurdles. He has to be monitored still. We still go every month at this point, but next month we get to go to every other month. So that the year mark. Yeah. He gets to back off to every other. Yeah. Okay. So that'll be exciting. Um, yeah. So he's doing good. He still has, a, I mean, we'd go to chemo and to get himself pumped up, he would start dancing in the elevator. Oh. And I know, I always thought if we could go back and look at the, cause I'm sure they have cameras in there. Like security. Footage. Right. Right. Like the security. Cause he'd be like, come on mom, let's dance. And you know, he found the joy in the hardest of times. He, he connected with people at the hospital during that hard three and a half years that are like family now. And now whenever we go, he has to go see all his people, give them a hug. And, you know, it was the darkest of times for our family, but it also, they made it bearable for us. And it also, we realized there were times that were the brightest of times during it too. You know, you, you, you learn to appreciate being home on Christmas morning and not having to go to the hospital. That was Carter's Christmas wish his first year. I don't need anything from Santa. I just don't want to have to go to the hospital and be poked, you know, and, and that was his Christmas wish and he got it. You know, that was, that's like, you know, that's what these kids go through. And, He's met lots of friends that your world kind of becomes the cancer world and he's met lots of friends and we've met people who have lost kids and um, relapsed and so that fear is always there. Um, the fear of relapse will probably never go away and I think it's almost probably stronger now that that treatment is over because when they're in treatment 
you're doing something about keeping the cancer from coming back or getting out of control. Or, and when you're off, you just have to wonder what is his body going to do? Is it going to, is it going to make these cells again? And so it's a scary time coming off of chemo. Um, and just like the realization that this could all change in an instant again. And, you know, he was impacted so much through school. I mean, that was his end of second grade, his third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and the start of sixth grade were all on cancer. This is his first year starting seventh grade where I didn't have to go to the school and do a presentation to like tell the kids about Carter. Like he's not on treatment and that's been since second grade. Um, it's just been so much of his life that, you know, he's missed out on so much stuff, but he's also created happiness too. Like we'd be here, he'd be having no count. So we, you know, we couldn't just pick up and go to the Jeremy movies or something where, you know, but we would, we would have, um, he loved watching the food network during his treatment and he loved the show chopped. And so we would have chopped competitions at home and we'd come up with secret ingredients and then, you know, he'd have to make something and we'd all sample it. And, you know, you, you find the joy in the little things and you find just being home, you know, I'll never take for granted just being able to be home again, because yeah. when you're stuck in a hospital for long, long periods of time, there is a genuine appreciation for just being able to be home. It's impossible to summarize probably those three and a half years in 30 minutes or whatever we've been mm -hmm. talking. But what would you say, you, I mean, you've painted a, a lot of the picture of what it was like taking care of Carter and what it was like watching Carter and what Carter's been through. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you and Monty? It was tough. It, I mean, it was tough because you put on that that okay we got this we're gonna go do this Carter I am you have to be I was his person you know he if he was feeling nervous about a procedure or something I needed to be strong for him so that he could get through it I needed to be his distraction to help him or to you know to do what he needed for me to do hold his hand so that he could tolerate what was being done to him or whatnot but I mean, there were plenty of times I'd come home and go in my closet and cry because you just feel so, you feel alone and you feel isolated and you feel like your child, you know, just watching your child suffer is just unimaginable, like, and not being able to do anything about it. And then like continuing, there were times I had to give him injections at home of chemo. Mm. That to me was the worst because it was a horrible chemo that made him feel so sick and I hated having to inject him with those chemos and he didn't like it and it was so bad but when he finished those we had a party we had a party and we I made him a cake that said no more <laughs> ARC because it was just so awful is that the name of the yeah and therapy. we had a party and you know so we tried to make light of things but it was very real and you know so many field trips he missed or you know things that his friends were able to do that they didn't he he was lucky though he did have a group of friends that has stuck by him to this day they're still close they would just drop by with ice cream or balloons or just a bag of chips when he was on steroids and craving Lay's potato chips. Like, um, he, so he was lucky in that sense. He had a good, when he'd go to school, his friends were there for him. And then even if he missed a week, you know, like they still were right there for him when he came back and included him. And that definitely helped him get through it for sure. Um, you know, it's not easy too, cause you find out, like I had to find out who my real friends were. I lost a lot of who I thought were my real friends. People I think just can't handle it. Um, in the beginning, it's kind of the new news, you know, people, I think they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. Um, and then there's people who just don't, I don't know if they, it's just too hard for them. Um, 
but like I had a f one friend who I thought was one of my close closer friends. She was one of the first people I called when this happened, and then I mean she essentially wrote me a breakup letter. What? Yeah, like that was saying what? What? what I just can't be friends anymore. This is I had to cancel an an outing that we were gonna do. Um, because Carter had a fever and I'd take him to the hospital and it was just too inconvenient and um, yeah, hurtful stuff. Like you, you definitely, especially I think with leukemia treatment being so long and it being three and a half years, you know, the novelty wears off for people like, Oh, you're still dealing with that. Like, aren't we over that yet? Like, no, we're still doing chemo. Like, you know, like we got a long haul here, right? You can handle the long haul. It's a long haul. And like I said, you find out who your friends were and but you also find out people who you didn't even know who stepped up, like who became like, who were just like those little angels that just came along that you were just like, Wow, I'm so God, glad that God led you to my life because um, you needed them at that time. You know, we had a lot of people that would just, you know, didn't even know us. Or one year for Christmas, somebody just stopped by and gave us $500. I still to this day do not even know who that was. The person that dropped it off handed me an envelope. It was Christmas Eve. And there was a note inside that said, Merry Christmas. Of course, everybody I know, no one will own up to it. And it was just the sweetest, you know, cause gesture. Yeah. Like trying to money, do something. Right. Money is tight. Like we have, yes, we have insurance, but we also have to pay co-pays and deductibles and medication. Oh my gosh. Medications. And it just, you know, we have a freestanding bill with children's. We just pay a monthly fee at this point because it, the, once you get it, the bill get down, then you're constantly still building to it because you're all, you're still going in and having treatments every month and you're still, do, you know, so it's like, you can't ever get free from it. Um, so those little acts of random kindness. And for all I know, it could have been somebody random or somebody that maybe just heard about us that, um, I, 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 I still to this day don't know who that was, but, um, it was, I just stood at the door, like with my mouth open, like what? <laughs> I mean, it was Christmas Eve. I was like making food and yeah, that was, that was awesome. Like, and for whatever reason, that person didn't want me to know who it was, Yeah. but, um, you know, it's you, there's a lot of people that you, that you gain along the way too. Even, Even though, though you lose, yeah, a, a lot left, a lot left. There was another friend I had, and um, when I'd run into her in the grocery store, she'd walk the other way. Oh, wow. Yeah. And just, she, and then when we would run into each other in the beginning, and I, you know, she, she, you could tell she didn't know what to say, like, or she didn't know if she should ask, how's Carter, or, you know, people just don't know what to do, and... You know, I, I think the thing is, if I could give advice to someone is you don't have to do anything. Just be there for somebody. Even if it's a phone call and the person doesn't even answer the phone, that's going through a rough time, leave them a message and say on that message, I know you're busy. I know you may not be able to call me back, but I just wanted you to know I'm thinking of you. Like those are the things that just mean a lot. They can carry you. They can carry you a long ways because you can't answer every text and you can't. And I mean, your child becomes your priority. Um, you're, you're, you have to save your child's life. So yeah, parenting is already a full-time job. Right. And now we got to add on top of it, a life-threatening disease. Right. And then, you know, I'd find when I would be with my friends, it, it was sometimes hard to relate because they'd be talking about, Oh, the laundry piling up and things that were big to them, but I just couldn't relate because my biggest relate was how many injections am I going to have to give Carter this week? Or how many times is he going for a spinal tap? Or is he going to be sick from the chemo? Or what are his counts? Or what can I do to shine bright in Charlotte or Lily's life this week since I maybe have an extra hour or two with one of them? You know, like, I just it was hard to relate to some of that typical everyday stuff. So in my mind, I think I just, you know, I probably shut down and probably 
pushed some people away too. Well, you were surviving too. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's about surviving on a million levels, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. So you do, you know, you take care of your family first and then, you know, I'd let myself go because I was the last on their priority for sure. So Carter, Carter is doing well mm-hmm. and his prognosis is it's it's good as of now like the the biggest thing is um not relapsing um he was on a trial a clinical trial um so he got a medication that they give to kids with t-cell leukemia which about 10 percent of kids with leukemia have t-cell um and so relapse rates are, you know, it's more aggressive. So the, the trial was to give kids... The leu- I'm sorry, the leukemia is more aggressive, so there's more relapse? Is that what you're saying? Right, and it's, and it's harder to treat, the T-cell is, gotcha. more so than what most, B, most leukemia in kids is B-cell. So, you know, it's just, it's just another classification, but it just basically means, you know, more aggressive treatment. Um and and watching that so one of the chemos that he received for his clinical trial is a chemo that they give kids with t-cell who have already relapsed so the trial is determining is if they go ahead and give it to the kids as the first treatment. Uh, right as their first treatment um would that make them less likely to relapse because when we were first told what he had and whatnot we were told he'd have like a 25 percent chance of relapsing so, you know, whereas you might think that's low, you know, if, if your kid is 1%, one kid out of 100, it doesn't matter what mm-hmm. the what the rate is. And I even asked the, the doctors that when he was first diagnosed, the oncologist, um, the radiation oncologist, you know, what is his prognosis? And he said something to me that has stuck with me since the beginning of time. He said... We don't. We don't even need to talk about that because Carter either has a one. Per, uh, uh, Carter either will survive or he won't survive. So if I were to tell you that he has a ninety-nine percent chance, which that's not true. That's not what it is. But right. let's just say if I were to tell you that, then if he was the one percent, that doesn't matter. If ninety-nine other, you know, so you have to just look at it as we're going to treat this we're going to do what we need to for this and not get caught up in those numbers. Um, but they did end up to another person ended up telling me that he had, you know, 25% chance of relapsing 75% of kids with this, you know, go on and have an event free, um, survival of five years is kind of where they look at the five year mark. So, you know, but if he's one of the 25, then obviously, but we just have to live each day that he's not going to relapse, that we'll deal with it if he does. Um, you know, I, it makes me sick to even think about it. We've had a couple little scares of things and things not being over the last 11 months. Yeah. Just discounts and being sick constantly and, you know, little things that was just like random, you know, ear infections that you know and it kind of all you know when your white blood cells start to go wonky you can get a lot of infections and stuff you know you try not to let your brain go there um but you can't help it too you know so well especially when this all started with a doctor visit because we thought we had a flu that was hanging on right it's like so anytime he throws up or acts weird i'm like yeah um is it back right so you're constantly worrying that um but we've also learned we just live each day to the best we can you don't we don't know what tomorrow will bring for any of us so we just have to live life and be grateful we're here now and we're healthy now and every day is a gift so you you've kind of already gone here organically on your own based on what you just said but i want to ask anyway when you reflect on this experience of supporting your son through Mm -hmm. childhood cancer Mm -hmm. if you were going to try and distill that down for the people who are listening based on what you've learned from that experience Mm -hmm. and you you would say all I know is that the day before Carter was diagnosed he, he didn't have cancer then either and so I would say 
don't take for granted having healthy kids in your life. And if you have healthy kids, do whatever you can to help those that don't have healthy kids, whether it's dropping a stuffed animal off at the hospital as a donation for somebody to um, brighten a child's day or to give, even if it's just a small amount, give up coffee one day and give a donation to an organization that helps kids with cancer or other life-threatening illnesses um, or to create joy like volunteer time or give to organizations that help kids like Make-A-Wish or um, there's lots of camps that do it. Um, you know, just... I won't ever take my kids' health or my own health for granted. And um, because I never would have thought that my perfectly healthy eight-year-old could just end up with cancer. Like it, it doesn't, cancer doesn't discriminate. It doesn't pick people based on, you know, what you do for a living or your job or your ethnicity or your, you know, if you have money or you don't have money. I mean, there are single moms with kids fighting cancer and, um, there are kids in foster care fighting cancer. You know, it's, it's easy. It's, it's kind of like when the commercial comes on with the dogs and the dogs are like, I have such a thing for animals and that ASPCA commercial comes on where oh. the dogs are like coming from and they're like, donate now. And you just want to turn the channel off. Mm -hmm. It's easy to do that because nobody wants to see little kids who are bald throwing up or sick or having needles stuck in them or going through surgeries or, you know, but the reality is it, it does happen. Yeah. Whether you're it's in, happening today. When, whether you're in tune to it or not, it is happening. And someday it could happen to somebody, you know, and if I knew now what I, if I, if I knew then what I know now, I would have absolutely become more a part of helping, you know, or becoming more vocal about at least spreading awareness or sharing these stories about kids because it's such a topic that's hard for people to think about or even talk about. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for telling us this part of your story and this part of Carter's story. Absolutely. I really appreciate you being willing to give everybody a window into mm -hmm. what that's like. And hopefully if there's someone who's walking through a similar path, mm -hmm. they take some comfort in hearing Absolutely. what you had to say. And, and hopefully most of us will never have to go there. Yep. But, I wouldn't wish it on my worst, worst enemy. Yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. But to your point, you know, whether you're aware or not and tuned in or mm -hmm. not, it is happening. Mm -hmm. And, um, Perhaps our conversation will help wake some people up. Seven kids die every day from cancer in the United States. Seven and too many. Yep. Seven too many. Mm -hmm. So we'll um, close our interview today like we close the end of every conversation, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with Inside the Actor's Studio with James Lipton. It's my favorite interview show. Uh -huh. And there's a um, questionnaire that he uses at the end of the show with every one of his guests. So uh -huh. we're going to do that. Okay. Kelly, what's your favorite word? Love. What's your least favorite word? Cancer. I had a feeling that that might be where you were going with that. Mm -hmm. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, emotionally? Being in nature. I love nature and with animals and with my family. What turns you off? People taking their life for granted. Yeah. Or complaining about little things. What's your favorite curse word? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't really cuss very often. Good for you. But there is some, you know, it's funny when Carter was going through all this and he had such a good attitude. There were times when he was just like, I don't want to go to the hospital tomorrow. And I'd say, you know what? you can say this. And so I'd tell him he could say cancer sucks. Uh -huh. And I really don't like that word sucks, uh -huh. but so I guess I, I'll say that sucks. Yeah. Sucks because he gave permission to Carter. Yeah. To say it. And I still don't like it. 
but I don't really cuss. Well, there you go. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Sound or noise? Oh, gosh, that's a good one. I love the noise of children laughing um, and the wind blowing through the trees and the waves crashing on the beach. Yes. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, machines beeping, IV machines beeping. What profession, other than your own, would you most like to attempt? It's funny, since this whole thing, I've thought about going back and becoming a child life specialist at the hospital. Really? Yeah, I've kind of toying with it in my, my mind. That's amazing. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's a bigger calling to me that I need to figure out what it is. I've, you know, I was a teacher before, and I love teaching, but... I don't know. I feel like I'm really drawn into this. I want to do something now for kids with cancer or even, even in the adoption world. I just feel like there's something in there, whether it be to help create families or help families who are going through um, these struggles. I don't know. I have to figure that out. I'm kind of lo- I think I'm having my midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> what profession would you definitely not like to attempt? anything where I was just sitting at a desk typing or filing if heaven exists what do you hope to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates I absolutely think heaven exists and I hope he says that he's proud of me and that he's proud of the person that I was and the legacy I left behind and the love that I shared. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope that you found the conversation with Kelly useful and that it's going to inspire you in your own life experience to do something. That's really, I think what our conversation boiled down to today is do something, do something kind, Mm -hmm. do something generous, do something outside your comfort zone, Mm -hmm. do something um, charitable to someone who's struggling. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and extend yourself. Mm -hmm. As always, we thank you so much for listening in. One of the most important things for our speakers and guests when they agree to be vulnerable with us about their life experience is to know that what they have to say is going to fall on ready ears and we couldn't do that without you. Please remember that all of the opinions, ideas, information, and views shared as part of today's conversation belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find each episode helpful and interesting, please note that this podcast doesn't serve as therapeutic intervention, nor should it substitute as advice or direction from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado. We specialize in working with adoptive families and provide support and training associated with attachment and the impact of early trauma on childhood development. If you or someone you love is struggling with adoption-related or relational challenges, find us on the World Wide Web. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you'd like to be a guest on All I Know, please reach out to Jess. You can contact her at jess.alliknow at inwardboundco.com. One more time, it's jess, J-E-S-S, dot alliknow at inwardboundco.com. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. We release a new episode every week. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us here at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can.